World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and that is where I am on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, Be sure and like and follow me. Greatly appreciate that. And uh, we're doing something a little different. As many of you know, uh, we have started to add in stories of the Korean War veterans, and Korea is referred to as the Forgotten War. And I've been wanting to add in Vietnam stories as well. And I was up at Cooper's Troopers uh, just this last month, and uh, and they were honoring six Iwo Jima World War II veterans. But I ended up sitting near Orison Swindle and uh, a Marine as well, uh, served in the Vietnam War. So, Orison, welcome. Thank you very much, Kim. Well, tell us a little bit about you, Orson. Well, it's a uh, it, it's a boring story in in a lot of in a lot of ways. I I grew up in uh, Southwest Georgia. I uh, attended a small rural, well not rural a small town school. Had about sixty five kids in my class, and uh, about forty five of us are still living as we approach eighty two. I attended Georgia Tech and got a degree there. Then was commissioned into the Marine Corps and. Uh, uh, about two years after being on active duty in the Marine Corps, I uh, applied to go to flight school, went to flight school, uh, returned to Beaufort, South Carolina, where we have a Marine Corps air station, and began flying the Marine Corps uh, F-8 Crusader, which was a fighter attack aircraft. I was uh, posted with my squadron to Da Nang Air Base in South Vietnam, in uh, around the 1st of February of 1966 and began flying combat missions uh, during that period of time. I flew uh, between that uh, that date, I think the 2nd of February when I flew my first mission, I flew 204 relatively successful missions and uh, got shot down on the very last mission I was to fly in Vietnam and uh, spent the next six years and four months roughly of my life in prison in Hanoi. And with that, I'll stop and leave it up to you to ask questions. (laughs) Wow. Okay, 204 successful missions. You're shot down. What went through your mind? What what happened when you were shot down? Were you hurt? What happened exactly? Well, uh, well, we were flying uh, two aircraft. We were flying uh, a mission, and I was flying a single-seat aircraft to make make it perfectly clear, but... uh, uh, we were flying an uh, uh, interdiction mission up just north of the demilitarized zone, and those Vietnam veterans and those guys in Cooper's Troopers will certainly remember the DMZ. Uh, just north of the DMZ, uh, I had pulled off a bomb run, and my aircraft was stuck, struck by uh, an aircraft fire. Uh, the Vietnamese had shot down two F-4s just prior to my getting shot down on the same target area. And uh, the aircraft uh, ceased to fly. It lost its hydraulic power, which means it's not going to fly. And uh, I ejected. Uh, the aircraft pitched nose down, and I uh, was going at uh, about four or 500 knots. And uh, I could not get response from the flight controls, and I was forced to eject. And I was immediately captured by the North Vietnamese in the area, and uh, there's an old adage uh, for fighter pilots uh, that, you know, never never jump out of your airplane over the target you just bombed, which is exactly <laughs> what I did. Okay. And that began my uh, my long-time uh, uh, incarceration in Hanoi. I was well south of Hanoi, and it took about, I think, about 40 days for me to get to North Viet up to Hanoi, and uh, went through quite a bit of very brutal treatment. Let's stop right there. When we were uh, talking, uh, as we were kind of preparing for this interview, you mentioned that when you left uh, to go uh, to Vietnam, that your son was mm-hmm. four years old. Share that story with us. Well, my son, I had one son when I was uh, shot down, and he had just turned four years old when I left uh, South Georgia, where I left he and left him and his mother to uh, spend the 13 months I would be in Vietnam, as planned at least. And uh, he was just had just turned four, and when I returned home 
and talked to him again. Uh, it was March the 4th of 1973. I had missed 11 years of his development from 4 to 11. I'm sorry, 7 years from 4 to 11. And uh, I have today uh, my stepson, my wife's son, and his wife had triplet <laughs> girls, grandchildren for us here about nine years ago. And I have had the great blessing of being able to experience those years four now through nine. And it's been the delight of my life to watch these little girls grow up and uh, and bring the happiness they have to us. And I understand you're a new grandmother, and I would congratulate you. It's a heck of an experience. <laughs> it, it, it really, really is. And, uh, uh, you know, you realize, and I, I feel somewhat trite to say this, you know, I, I do the World War II project. I have my other radio show, and I feel that we're in a battle of ideas of which uh, I, I'm fully engaged in that. Uh, and, and I think it's a serious time in America. However, I, I obviously never went through and put my life on the line like like you did. And uh, But I think that it's important that we work diligently to pass something good to the next generation. So thank you for that. Let's, let's go back to your story. You're shot down. You've been captured. You said it took 40 days to get up to Hanoi. Uh, do you want to uh, uh, talk at all about that, those 40 days? Well, I... Uh... I was immediately after capture. They stripped me down and and uh, my shorts and uh, uh, no, I take that back. I still have my flight suit, flight suit on, but they took my boots and everything that I had on me, which for some of it was lethal. But uh, they took that away from me, and they put me in a pit that was about four feet, five feet deep, and all I was shot down about mid afternoon. And all during that ensuing night, uh, people from the villages came in. I was in this, uh, it was like a cave, but I had this pit inside this small cave, and they had people walk through there, and they had political uh, operatives there who were just stirring them up to fairly well. And I spent the night being spit on, urinated on, beaten with sticks, thrown, hit by rocks and stones and so forth. And I was in a state of shock, as you might expect mm-hmm. from the experience. And uh, that was my introduction to captivity in North Vietnam. The next day or so, I would be taken out for interrogation. And uh, one of the interrogations was before three uh, looked to be officers, as best I could determine. And it got, it was cold, it was November, and, uh, and I was in shock to begin with, so the temperatures dropped a little bit, and I'm sure it wasn't below 45 degrees, but I was freezing to death, not to mention being a little bit terrified about what was about to happen, but mm-hmm. I was taken out into a, uh, taken into a thatched roof hut where I was interrogated, and I would not answer the questions, and they kept threatening me, and finally they just gave up threatening me, and, and they took, parachute riser cord, which is about the diameter of a small pencil. And they put tourniquets above my elbows and both arms and took the stringer from this this uh, noose they put around my arms and pulled it from opposite sides, three guys on either side, until they pinned my forearms up my back. My thumbs were up behind my head. They then... Uh, put strapping around my shoulders and pulled in opposite directions in a similar manner and dislocated my shoulders. And they put a more parachute cord on my fingers, my thumbs, and then horsed, put it, that over a rafter in this hut and then horsed me up off the ground and beat the living hell out of me until I talked. That was an abrupt awakening. What did you say? Well, uh, I realized that... Uh, I was hanging up by my thumbs and in excruciating pain, and you know I knew I was I, there was not a person on the face of the earth that could help me, and I was going to have to do something because the pain was maddening. And uh, I told my told, and they sort of cut me down and and loosened up my the straps on my arms where I, I did some rather severe damage to my arms and shoulders. But uh, I, they started up by saying, who, who are you? And I, well, they knew who I was. My name was on my flight suit, and my squadron's exceeding was on the flight suit. So uh, 
I, they very quickly, uh, they, they, they weren't very sophisticated interrogation other than torture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they um, started asking me about my squadron and said, how many pilots are in your squadron? And I said, well, 25. There was, I think, 18. And then they said, who is your squadron commander? And I did a little uh, thinking on my feet here. And I thought of my high school football team and my football coaches. And I designated my football co- head football coach as a squadron commander. His assistant was the ex- executive officer at number two. And then the lineup of our football team that year, we gradu- I graduated and we had a good team. Uh, I named all 11 of us as the pilots. And I told them I couldn't remember the rest. Well, they wrote all this stuff down, and when I came home to fast forward, I was my hometown, small town, and my family had been there for several generations, and they had a big welcome home war Sunday, and asked me to speak to everybody, and the auditorium was filled with people, 300 people or so. And I looked down, and about seven or eight of those 11 guys <laughs> were right in front of me, and I said, I just want to, I interrupted my remarks, I said, I want to say one thing to you guys down there, and I named them off. I said, don't you ever go to North Vietnam, because they're looking for you. <laughs> oh, Orson, my gosh. But uh, I learned that telling lies was going to be the best way to cope with the pain and suffering uh, that would come in the weeks and months and years that would follow, and uh, I got real good at it. Mm-hmm. So you were uh, a prisoner of war for six years and four months. That is a long time out of somebody's mm-hmm. life. And uh, so this and was... Go ahead. That's hard, to, that's hard to comprehend, but put it in terms of 2,304 days. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. staggering. I, I can't comprehend it anymore myself. Okay, you said one of the things that got you through was lying. Uh, you 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 had to talk because if you didn't talk, they certainly would torture you. Right. But you still got tortured, probably, right? Pardon me. Did you still get tortured even though you talked? I, I'm sorry, I'm not getting. Oh, I no, got not interference on my phone. No problem. Did you can? Were you tortured even when you talked, or did it make it better? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean that would that would usually break the torture cycle, but sometimes it took a long time. They kept me sitting on a stool in the summer of 1969. I was wired to this stool, sitting under a lamp, a uh, hanging lamp bulb. And they kept me awake by having the guards come by and peer in through the bars at me sitting there. Uh, And he had a big, long bamboo or fishing pole, as I would call it, down in South Georgia. And his job was to keep me awake. They kept me awake for 10 straight days. And uh, I went sort of nuts through the, you know, the sleep deprivation and whatever, and uh, they let me rest for a day, and then the next day they came back and said they were trying to get me to write statements against the war and write letters to Senator Kennedy and all this garbage, and they said, surely now you're right, and I said, no, I'm not going to write, so I am told by people who were in prison, my absence from my normal cell um, I was out there for 10 days, then there was that one or two day break, and then they kept me on the stool for 10 more days without sleep, and then I went completely nuts, mm-hmm. <laughs> hallucinations and everything. They started putting, we were not fed very well, but they gave us the bowls of soup, and they started salting the soup, and it was the middle of well, the late summer, hot as 40 hills, and uh, I just, uh, I was dehydrated and I was hallucinating and I went sort of nuts. And they, they, they actually, they, it scared them and they backed away from me a little bit and sent me back to my cell. And I did write a statement. They got a statement out, out of me, which I, one of our tactics was uh, when we were, had to write, eventually after all of the abuse and torture. We would botch up everything we wrote so that, I mean, all of us were, I think, except for about three people, were college graduates, and we we botched the English English, uh, something fierce so that if anybody saw it, they knew something was wrong here. That's not real. Mm -hmm. But they were just ways of coping, but uh, they would usually let up after the torture and throw us back in the cell. Our cells, by the way, were not like you might think of a jail cell with bars. It was solid 
uh, block cinder block walls and uh, and very little circulation. The few windows that might be in the prison cell block were all boarded up, and uh, the heat rash would start covering our body in early April, and it would finally be gone somewhere around the end of November. A pretty miserable existence. I got down to less than 130 pounds, if I remember correctly. So were you in a cell with others, or was it just you by yourself? Uh, early on, and this was typical, and what I'm saying is very typical of what vast, vast majority of us experienced. Uh, I was solo, as we would say, in the vernacular of POWs, and uh, that made it difficult. But we had a means of communicating with, communicating with uh, each other by many means. Uh, we had tap code. We we had clandestine mail drops and things like that that we would organize. We'd whisper under the doors, the cell doors, but they were solid cells, so we couldn't see anybody. But we would whisper to the guy across the, the corridor, and I, some of my best friends, I, I came to know them by looking at their eyeball under a door mm. <laughs> for for months and months and months. And uh, But we communicated, and uh, that helped us through the ordeal. I would later get several roommates, cellmates, over a period of time. Uh, uh, I was moved into one cell about... Uh, Eight months after I was, about six months after I was captured, and I moved in with three men who all were gone now. There were Air Force captains, uh, Ron Stores and George McKnight and Wes Sherman. They were all captured in 1965, a year before me, and they were three of the most remarkable people I've ever known. As I say, they're my heroes, and they saved my life by restoring my own sense of dignity. I. When I moved in with them, I think I was the last person in that camp to get a cellmate, and I moved in with them, and I immediately told them that through the course of the clandestine communication, I'd learned what staunch, learned about how tough they were in resisting and their exploits and what they'd been through, and I, I said, i got to apologize to you. I haven't done very well. I, 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 they tortured me uh, numerous times, and... I had to talk to get out of the bind, and, and one of the guys uh, who just recently passed away, uh, George McKnight, laughed out loud, and he said, Orson, you're looking at the earnest way of, of North Vietnam. Man, when they got you in the ropes, you're going to tell them something. It's not a question of that. You just want to be careful what you do tell them, and that's where the lying came in handy. But they were extremely uplifting to me to be in that miserable situation and have them help reassure me that I had done the best I could, and that's all we expected of anybody. Wow. Hey, Orson Swindle, this is a fascinating story. Uh, You're a Vietnam veteran, and you were in the Hanoi Hilton for uh, over six years. Uh, So let's go to break. Kim Munson with the uh, World War II Project. We're talking about Vietnam today. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I have on the line Orson Swindle. He is a Vietnam veteran. He was a, a Marine pilot. He was shot down and spent over six years in the Hanoi Hilton uh, as a prisoner of war. And so we've, we've gone basically through uh, kind of the first part of of uh, when you were a prisoner of war. Let's let's talk about the, the middle part now. Uh, what was the, the daily routine once you finally got to a point where you had some roommates? Well, uh, we uh, lived... In groups of one, two, and three, and four, and I say one <laughs> because we, we, I think I talk to myself a lot as you pace back and forth in these small cells, but uh, we were kept in these cells, uh, very low uh, circulation, as I said, heat rash, rash was a horrible experience for all of us, and it happened every every year. And, uh, and we what is that exactly? When, er, Orson, what is heat rash exactly? That's right. People in Colorado don't even know what heat rash is. I grew up in southwest Georgia, and it is a condition caused by uh, insufficient circulation and extraordinary heat. I mean, I I would lie down at night on this bunk bed that I was, you know, had to sleep on, and oftentimes that was a concrete pad. 
and and sometimes with leg stocks on the end of it where you if you were being punished they had you in leg stocks but in the summertime under a, a, a mosquito net the perspiration would just be rolling off of you hours after you quit moving and uh, that heat rash and that constant state of, of, of moisture all over you leads to a rash and it would be literally all over our bodies and I, it, it was just miserable and it itches like mad so oh, that's heat rash and okay. if anybody in the audience grew up in southwest Georgia, you know exactly what i'm talking okay. about okay so uh, there obviously uh, you can't do it we had we lived in these small cells and uh, our beds were basically concrete pads or uh, a board Oftentimes, it was simply sleeping on a dirty floor. We were fed twice a day, and it was very insufficient food for you know our physical makeup. And uh, I lost an enormous amount of weight, as did everybody. Uh, the, the, the meal usually consisted of a bowl of, of a, we call it sewer grass soup, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and a and a piece of bread or a bowl of rice. And our plate of rice, and that was it. And that went on well into my stay. Uh, about the fifth or sixth year, when things seemed to be changing, they were getting some supplies from the Iron Bloc countries and like Poland and Yugoslavia and places, the communist countries, and uh, they were shipping in uh, cans of lamb, uh, goat, I call it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, it was they gave us just a small amount. I mean, there's nothing to gain weight on. So uh, it was pretty miserable. And then we would be interrogated uh, uh, once or twice a week uh, by uh, enlisted uh, people who had been taught to speak English. And our interrogations usually were just English lessons. And uh, and then uh, when they called us communicating, the purges would begin, and that would be a horrible experience of torture. Beatings, isolation. Uh, we had some that lived four years without seeing an American. Uh, they were not not to say they weren't communicating because we, we they never stopped us from communicating. That we were that was our lifeblood, and we knew we had to stick together, and and we did a remarkable job of that. And uh, it was not a pleasant existence to say the least. Every every night and. Sometimes during the day, we they had a radio speaker in our uh, cells. It was away from the window, which was boarded up anyway. But it was propaganda, and we never heard a positive word about our country, of our of our families. Uh, vast majority of us didn't get did not get mail. I did not hear from my wife until about about five and a half years after I'd been shot down and the letters I got from I think it was three or four they were all about three years old and uh, it just it just it's it's a mental challenge to stay ahead of the pain the sadness the despair uh, uh, the malnutrition uh, things like that and I I think of these kids today in colleges and you spoke of we're at a turning point in our country about how we're going to go forward and I read about these kids who are offended by everything under the sun they need safe places to stay when they're in college because somebody said they didn't like them or they don't agree with them and I just scratch my head and say what in the world has happened Mm -hmm. this is not the world I grew up in certainly not the country I grew up in and when I think of the sacrifices that have been made on behalf of this generation today, that and it's done by generations before them, and dear prices were paid. And mm-hmm. I guess I paid a pretty dear price myself, but mm-hmm. certainly not the ultimate price of losing your life. But uh, I just shake my head and wonder what in the world can an 82-year-old former fighter pilot in the Marine Corps do? But I'm not giving up. Well, I'm not giving up either. And I think that that is one of the the reasons that I do this show, this World War II project, is that we need to make sure that we we have the history and we teach the history. In fact, I've talked to some of the, the World War II guys, and I've talked to parents as well, that they've said that in our history books, in our, in our schools these days, there's only like a paragraph for the uh, for World War Two and and That's the whole right. story is not being told and and it, it it's really a disservice but I'll tell you Orson when I am out and about 
one of the things it's, it's shameless branding, but I carry around a rubber chicken handbag because it's a conversation piece. And people say, mm-hmm. oh, my God, because you, you really don't see very many women carrying around rubber chicken handbags as their as their purse. But it's a great conversation piece. And then I mention I have a couple of radio shows. And then I explain that I've been uh, interviewing these World War II veterans and to a person, their eyes light up. And I, I, I take great heart in that because it real, I realize that people are hungry for these stories. I, I, uh, your story is absolutely riveting. I, 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 so you're in the Hanoi Hilton. You've, you're there for a total of over six years. You had left a little four-year-old at home. Did the people back home know if you were alive or not? Uh, I was uh, listed as missing in action, presumed captured captured i'm sorry okay. and uh i was not permitted to write home for four years and then those letters if they got home and a few of them did got home through anti-war activists from the united states that went to hanoi to give them strength to resist the americans i mean just total damn traitors and uh, that's the way our mail would get home, and I, I almost was reluctant to even write, knowing that that's how the mail got home. I didn't want my family exposed to that, mm-hmm. but it, that would not be very productive to do that. So, uh, but it, it was a miserable time, and you, you speak of uh, your efforts, and uh, God bless you for for doing what you're doing, but. Uh, we're not only not teaching history, uh, isn't it amazing how effective a very small number of people are being at literally erasing our history? And I read a lot, and I am a student of history, and I know that our history has got many, many things we aren't very proud of. We are a flawed country, but we're the best country that ever existed on the face of the earth. And I know from history that the surest way you repeat history is to forget it. And by erasing history, we are wiping out very significant aspects of the history of this country. And that's not good. I, you know, I lived in South Georgia, and, and I know about racism. Uh, but we've made incredible strides. And uh, if we erase history, how can we learn from it? You know, and it's it's the most stupid thing in the world. And I read some statistics here recently where that among uh, uh, kids graduating from school in some of our major cities, uh, 40, 50, 60 percent of them don't have a functioning use of mathematics. They don't have a, a good command of our language. Uh, it's just it's terrifying to me because I grew up in a little small town. We weren't uh, rich, uh, you know, just everyday uh, middle class family. And I got I was communicating with a friend of mine today on email, and and we were talking about we went to high school together about how we were educated. And I said, Good Lord, think of it! I was taught to love books, to love history, to read, to know the language, and it's not being conveyed. And I don't know. How we survive that if we don't turn it around, and and the blame is going to be on all of us, uh, led by the teachers' unions and people, and, and and these progressives that want to change everything, and by the families who aren't paying attention to what is happening to their children in school. It, it's a tragedy. Well, we do have to be paying attention, and and to that, I'm encouraged, Orson. Uh, another project that I've been working on is a, a study of the Federalist Papers. I'm working with Dr. Tom Cranowitter and his team over oh, at Speakeasy Ideas. And um, we actually thought, well, why don't we get some people together? And and interestingly enough, we decided that we would do this throughout the complete year. We started in January. And we have room for 74 people. Uh, and we're doing this over in Centennial at Waters Edge Winery. 
and Orson, it is sold out, and the wait list is significant. We're going to start another one. That I is think, fantastic. I think people are hungry, 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 and we just have to make sure that, you know, I, I talk to, to people, and I say, we have to understand, we have to understand why we believe what we believe. And when you tear down history and ignore history, there is no way to understand you know, who we are, where we come from, why we exist. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons I do the, these radio shows is is so that we can talk about these things. And, and I truly am encouraged. I think that there is a great awakening. And uh, Well, we need, we need to spread it. I always speak to people about uh, uh, we all have spheres of influence. And I may know 100 people. You may know 200. You probably do since you're on the radio. And if we could just get our sphere of influence to get active in telling their sphere of influence about the necessity for us to pay attention to all of this, and then those people tell their sphere, their sphere of influence, we can make a difference. And, you know, and I also tell them that, you know, uh, we by nature are uh, easygoing folks. We don't campaign year-round. We aren't activists. We aren't community organizers. But I'll guarantee you the people that are tearing this country down, they work at it every single day. And any day that we're not working on trying to influence people and get the word out about how great this country is and what its history is and why we are like we are, we're losing, and uh, I'm glad you're encouraged, and I really commend that effort. I'd love to come sit in some night, but it's it's just a, a phenomenal uh, challenge for all of us. And, you know, President Reagan, who I happened to work for for about eight years, uh, he once said that our freedom is only about one generation from e- extinction. And if we don't pass it along, it dies. And it's that simple. And that's been the case of democracies throughout history. And, you know, we're the longest existing democracy, I think, that uh, I'm aware of. And we're, we're 250 years old almost. And, and, and the reason it don't exist is because in a democracy we have these liberties, we have these freedoms. We're not pressuring each other, but then we get lax. Well, and we, then someone comes. Someone comes in with a, a more vile idea, or a vile idea. I shouldn't say more, and they win, and democracy disappears. So we yeah. got to keep going. Well, that's right, and and we are. We're a democratic constitutional republic, and the founders worked diligently. They thought they took a look at history. They said what worked, what didn't work. They looked at Rome. They looked at Greece, and they said what works, what didn't work. And so they came up with this whole American idea which is, I, I do believe that it's at risk right now. I, I've said to many people, I think that we are in the third founding of America. There was Washington with the with the Patriots, and there was Lincoln and the Civil War. And I really think that we are in the third founding of America. And and, and I'm encouraged, but it's a heck of a fight right now, for sure. Um, it's, it's a constant fight. It is. But uh, the other thing is, is we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the blood of the patriots, and that blood goes through our veins, and it is our time. And I think that our kids, I, I can't really blame our kids, Orson, because I feel it is my generation that have let them down. And one of these days, they're going to wake up, and they're going to say, you guys lied to us. You know what? I, and I'm talking, you know, in a bit in the big thing about, you know, what really matters. You've tried to take away our freedom in the name of, you know, fill in whatever activist thing it is. And our kids are going to look at us and say, you know what? You lied to us. And I tell you, that is not the legacy that I want to pass on to the next generation. Well, you're exactly right. It's not our kids' fault. I mean, I didn't mean, didn't mean to apply that they were at fault. I'm just saying they are the product of our failure to perpetuate the values and and, 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 and and the traditions, the heritage of our country and the history of it. In fact, uh, so many under the influence of people who really don't seem to like this country 
are undermining all of that, and they're getting away with it. And it's up to parents, uh, our generation, to say no to this. Uh, our triplet daughters, uh, granddaughters, go to a, a charter school, and it is just absolutely superb. They are learning our history. They're learning science. They're learning things at an age of nine that that uh, I didn't. I don't think I learned until I got in high school. <laughs> I hate to say that because I was pretty well educated, but I am so impressed by what they're getting. But every school is not like that. And, well, and that's our fault. And that we've is, let that happen. We have let that happen. And so we've given up a lot of ground, but we need to hold the line and then we need to, to go on the offense on that. Uh, we're going to go to break here in just a minute, uh, Orson. Um, we ended up talking about today, which is so important. As you mentioned, Reagan said that, that, that freedom is, is no more than one generation away from losing it, and that's why we have to fight for it. And to be speaking with you, uh, a Vietnam veteran who spent six years, over six years, as a POW, you give a perspective that we need to stand up and listen to. So this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We're talking with Orson Swindle, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and I am the AmeriChicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. I'd appreciate it if you like me, follow me. And uh, talking today to Orson Swindle, as as you know, this show precipitated out of a trip that I took with a team from the with the Denver Police Activities League in 2016, where we accompanied four D-Day veterans back to Normandy. And standing on the beaches uh, behind these guys, listening to them talk about D-Day, we came back, we realized we have to share these stories. So I've had the great honor to interview over 100 World War II veterans. Uh, we've been adding in some of the Korean War vets. The Korean War is referred to as the Forgotten War. And I've been wanting to add in Vietnam veterans as well. And so I was up at Cooper's Troopers, which is a group of Marines that meet uh, up north, and happened to meet Orson Swindle. And as I was standing there, kind of listening to your story, starting to put two and two together when the other Vietnam veteran came up with tears in his eyes. I'm, I'm kind of looking at I'm like, these are really tough, courageous men that have been through something pretty tough. And so just so pleased and honored to get to interview you, Orson. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, to say the least. And uh, it, was, uh, I, I, it was a great place for us to meet with troopers, uh, Cooper's Troopers, as we like to call ourselves. And the program, of course, as you knew and others did, and there were six survivors of the Iwo Jima invasion of World War II. All of them were in their 90s. I think the youngest may have been 92 or 93. And they were just a remarkable uh, small group of men, and there are not many of them still alive. Mm-hmm. My father made the landing on Iwo Jima in, in nineteen in February of nineteen forty-five, and survived it. And it's a story that needs to be echoed constantly. Our kids need to hear about it. They need to learn about it more than hear about it. They need to know what price has been paid for this great country. And uh, your efforts certainly help in that. And all of us, everybody, every family ought to tell these stories over and over and over. I have, that just caused me to think about, I have a very dear friend who's Samoan, and there is a tradition in the Samoan culture that all the children have to be educated in the history of their family, and then the grandchildren have to be educated in it, and then on and on and on. They perpetuate their tradition, their history, their culture, and we don't do that. We're too busy with iPhones and and, uh, sports events and things of this nature. Too many distractions, but history is such a wonderful pleasure. I mean, it is just, I I watch old movies. I I am just fascinated by history. I want to know what's the story behind that story, and I read all the time, and we just need to get back to that so that if the public schools aren't going to educate our kids properly, we can at least help educate our kids by, in, you know, enticing them to read. These stories are wonderful stories, and they're true. Well, my dad always said, you know, each of us has 24 hours in a day, and we decide what we're going to do with that. And so we're equal in the amount of time that we have uh, each day. But then we make choices yep. which give us unequal outcomes, but we need to be responsible for those choices. And I've always thought, been a proponent of reading, 
But I am changing that because there's so much junk out there now. We need to read great books. We need to think great thoughts. Those are the, the places that we need to go. And that was what education really was, was for. But I, 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 we're going to have to have another conversation on all this. We're in our last segment here. And uh, Orson Swindoll, you serve, or you were in the Hanoi Hilton, which was a POW uh, camp back in the Vietnam War. You were there for over six years. And uh, so let's get through. I, I take it that maybe that middle part, it was uh, the days were they were pretty tough. And, uh, you know, you did you had meager food. You lost a lot of weight. Uh, you had beatings. I mean, there was there much different in, in that interim period there between when you were captured and then near you when you started to see maybe a change of what was happening? You know, I think you mentioned maybe in the fifth year. So is that pretty much every day? That's kind of what it was like for about five well, years. It's, it's an interesting question, and, and we who flew fighter aircraft, uh, you know, they go very fast, and we do crazy things with them, and we dive at the ground and, you know, go up high and all that stuff. And, and uh, I said, what's flying like? What's flying a jet fighter like? I said, well, to a great extent, it's, it's, it's hours and hours on boredom, occasionally interrupted with a few moments of stark terror. <laughs> and that's sort of the way being a POW was. I mean, we were... We just sat there, and they, you know, one of the one of the things that troubled me so much as day after day went by, and it went on for months and then years, was this idea that all of this time I'm unable to read anything, mm-hmm. I hear no truth, to communicate with anyone, to share ideas or thoughts or memories is almost impossible because we were tortured and we were caught communicating. So, And people just don't understand what we have. And uh, so it was very difficult uh, as to the question of uh, did the latter phase change. The biggest thing, and I think most of my, my fellow POWs would probably agree with this, the most dramatic change that we saw was after Ho Chi Minh died, if I remember correctly, on September the 19th of 1969. That caused things to change. And then a next, they, they started, uh, the torturing was brutal up to that point in time. Then it started to change. That summer I mentioned, which I sat on the stool, Ho Chi Minh died shortly after I was. I finally gave up. And a friend of mine was out. They were doing the same thing to him, had me sitting on a stool. And the word came that Ho Chi Minh had died, and he was immediately taken back to his cell. So the harsh torture began to subside with Ho Chi Minh's death. Then uh, the Sante Raid, which occurred in November November the 20th, 1970, when special forces came into the camp where I was, where they kept me sitting on the stool for so long, Sante, we had just been moved about 30 or 40 days before that, if I remember correctly, a couple mm-hmm. of months. And that scared the living daylights out of them. They, they, had we been there, we would have been home. There's been about 55 of us. I mean, just, it's a remarkable story in itself. Talk about heroes. Those are heroes. And we were all moved into the Hanoi Hilton, as we call it, which is a big camp, uh, a big uh, prison, Wallow, which has been around since the days of French colonials. And we were there, and we got very sophisticated with our communication. And, and uh, it, things changed dramatically with that because they, they could no longer isolate us and keep us in small groups. We were all in the same place at the same time. We were in different cell blocks with about 40 or 50 in each one, but we developed communications. And they never stopped us from communicating. And and then, of course, when the bombing of Hanoi occurred in 1972, December, that really changed things. In fact, that taught – I mean, it, it, we could have won that war. My God, it, we, it, there were so many mistakes made in that war. And, you know, in the final analysis, maybe we did win by staying there as long as we did. Uh, Vietnam today is a communist government, but it is so capitalistic. Uh, that, uh, you're watching the news of President Trump's visit to Hanoi. 
it's like a modern city. And uh, so maybe in the final analysis, we did win. But the treatment uh, after the bombing of Hanoi, was, it was amazing. Uh, and we had no way of knowing what was going on other than there was a, this, this peace accord, peace talks, which had been going on for three years, by the way. And then uh, they call us out in late January of, uh, of 73 and read to us the final accords of the Paris peace talks. And we had long since said that, that under no circumstances do we show any elation over news of our release, however they want to do it. But we had seen pictures, movies, film of the French and their surrender, a big propaganda movie. And the French were jumping up and down, and we said, don't ever do that. To every guy that we could get in touch with, don't you ever do that. Do not show elation. So they called us out, read the peace accords to us. We stood there very stoically, and the senior officer of the Vietnamese said, did you understand what we just said? And we said, oh, yeah, we understand. May we be dismissed. And he said, go back to yourselves. <laughs> so it was just, just drop-jawed. He didn't know what to say. Well, and this happened one time after another. And we fought them every step of the way. And in the final analysis, we won, at least the Battle of Hanoi. You know, it's interesting that you would say that. I I need to learn a lot more about this. I recently did on my other show. I had a former Army um, oh, special something. I apologize on that. But Frank Hawkins and he had special done a, forces. Yeah, special forces. I think. And he, like yeah, he's done. A, he had done a, a couple of pieces in the American Thinker, and one of them was the ten most destructive Americans. And one of the guys on there was Walter Cronkite. And, you know, Walter Cronkite was a newscaster that uh, uh, Frank Hawkins' premise is that Walter Cronkite got the reporting wrong. And many, many years later, he uh, he acknowledged that. But there was tremendous damage that was done. He would he'd be on every uh, every day during the evening news talking about the war. And uh, Frank oh, yeah. Hawkins said that uh, Walter Cronkite had gotten it wrong. Uncle Walter, mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a, b- a beloved person. I, I, a little interesting side note, when I came home, after I came home, I was working in the Reagan administration. I was with President Reagan for eight years in his administration. And uh, I was called by Walter Cronkite, one of his producers. Walter Cronkite, as you might recall, in about 81, went to Hanoi. And he wanted a POW to go with him. And I said, please tell Mr. Cronkite that I had such respect for him for so long. And it's because of that respect I will thank. I will just merely say thank you for the invitation. I will not go because he failed us immensely with his courage. Mm-hmm. And he was duped. And so many were duped. And mm-hmm. some of them, I think, even had the intention to be duped. But... Uh, uh, we won in the long run. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, Orson, let's let's go to. Uh, you you said that they they brought you out and they said that uh, the Paris Peace Accords that uh, there's been an agreement on that. Talk about the the you know the end of your captivity, uh, coming home. Tell us how how that was. We've got about six minutes. Okay. Uh, we were uh, we had been blind every time we were moved and we moved off and around Hanoi we were blindfolded and handcuffed and all this routine it was always at night well uh, when the they they brought the the uh, the international team in and they talked to us about we were about to be released and and blah 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 and and they gave us some clothes and uh, they. Uh, drove us in a bus. Uh, this is in increments. So first with the middle of February, then I was with the March. Another group around 21 March, and then I think it was one last very small group. And it was all by date of shoot down, or whether you injured came out first, of course, but the rest of us came out in the order of being shot down. And uh, we drove through Hanoi, which had just been obliterated by the uh, by the uh, B-52s, and we enjoyed the hell out of that ride, I might add. <laughs> And we got to to the airport, and I'll probably get choked up when I tell this story because it's really emotional. But uh, 
we were driven out in a bus. There were about 20 of us on this small bus, and we were to be, we took, we were taken back around the hangar, an old rusted out hangar, and we were the 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 turnover process was there, and there was a big square maybe 20 feet, 20, 20 yards by 20 yards square, and sitting at, and was surrounded by Vietnamese and, and media people. And they were filming everything. And the receiving officer in the United States, was, in my case, was a Brigadier General uh, Ogan, as I recall his name. And But we, my group, we were waiting for our turn to be released to this, uh, this general. And we were sitting there, and there were no planes there at the time when I got when my group got there. And we were sitting in this bus, and I looked out the window, and off in the distance was a smoke trail from the fuel burning of a big C-141 transport plane. They became known as the Hanoi Taxi. And it approached us, and I kept staring at it, and all of us were looking at it and staring and staring. And then because of the horizon and the, the buildings in place, it landed. And as it taxied close to us, it finally came into view. And the first thing we saw was a tail. And there was a big red, white, and blue American flag painted on that tail. And, and that was the most emotional thing I think I've ever experienced in my life. Yeah. And I realized that this this was not some propaganda charade we were going through. This is real, and we uh, we were escorted individually out. We, they announced us. We went up, saluted the general, and and uh, then we were introduced to an escort officer, who was an Air Force officer in my case, and walked out the C-141 to get on, walk the back ramp and get on that airplane and. We all got on the airplane, the pilots closed that ramp, and we started taxiing, and all of us were just sitting there almost in disbelief. It had been so long. And uh, we took off, and as soon as we lifted up and he raised the landing gear, which you really know because it's a lot of noise, we cheered. And then he turned uh, to the east, and as we crossed the beach, a term that we used when flying combat, he said, gentlemen, feet wet. In other words, we were out of the water. We were going home. It was really emotional. Wow. <clears throat> I could talk for hours about this. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and seeing my, 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 then my wife and my son was uh, an emotional experience that I really would break up. I, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you someplace with your husband and we'll have a glass of wine. I'll tell you that, and then I can cry. Oh, I tell you, I've got tears in my eyes on this, Orson. So, uh, uh, big radio show hosts aren't supposed to cry, right? <laughs> so, that's quite quite the story. So, Orson, we've got just about a minute and a half, and we've talked a little bit about it. But, what is your message to uh, the young people in America today? Well, learn about our country. You're getting. A lot of false information. This is a great country. We have flaws, but having traveled all over the world, I'm telling you, <laughs> there's no place you can go that you will not want to get back home. This is the greatest country on the face of the earth, and we are a magnificent, generous, self-sacrificing group of people. We have helped people throughout the world in so many different ways, and we have lost thousands and thousands of lives helping other people. We are a good country. Read your history and realize that someday you might be 82 years old if you're lucky, like me, and you need to be telling kids the same story I just told you. This is a great country, and you are blessed to be a citizen of the United States of America. Orson Swindle, thank you so much. This is Kim Munson with the Americhick signing off. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the Americhick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.